welcome to St. Martin the Fields and welcome to great sacred music. Special welcome to those joining us online. I don't often do a hands up, but I'm going to do a hands up today, so get ready. You all ready? Getting nervous? Uh, who was aware before they walked into the church and picked up the leaflet that it was the week of prayer for Christian unity this week? Yeah, both of you. Yeah, terrific. Well, I think that shows that we found other things to kill each other about uh, in recent years other than denominational differences, which I guess is progress, sort of. Um, in fact, the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity is a tradition that goes back to 1908 when unilaterally the Catholics declared that we were going to have one, which kind of isn't the point, really. But uh, it begins on the 18th of January with the Feast of the Confession of St. Peter and concludes with the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul on January the 25th. It became a cross-denominational tradition uh, in earnest in 1948, so it only took 40 years for the rest of the church to catch up with the Catholics, uh, and it, it took off in 1948 uh, due to the founding of the World Council of Churches in that year. Ecumenism is traditionally based in the words of Jesus in John 17, his prayer, that they may be one that the world may know and believe the oneness of the church reflecting the oneness of God in the Trinity, a perfect image of unity in diversity. My own uh, model for ecumenism is more based on the story of the prodigal son and his brother, the sense of the father, and the prodigal son is the notorious one who goes out and has uh, loose living, which always sounds rather exciting to me, and the, you can think of that uh, of uh, the prodigal as the Protestants, the Catholic, the one that stayed home but was just as miserable uh, and didn't want to come to the party either. And the point is that they both need to come home, not that one needs to come to where the other one is. Anyway, you get the idea. Well, it's our tradition at Great Sacred Music to sing together at the beginning and at the end. So this is the beginning. So um, we're, if you find your sheets, you can find on the inside a hymn by John Oxenham, whose real name was William Arthur Dunkley. I always think it's quite a classy thing if you're going to leave a legacy of hymns to write under a pseudonym. It just gives that little touch. If you're thinking about leaving a legacy of hymns, something you might want to think about doing is writing under a pseudonym. Just a, just a suggestion. He was a Baptist deacon, uh, and he wrote this hymn for a London Missionary Society pageant at the Agricultural Hall in 1908. So very suitable because it was the same year as the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity was first conceived. Now, don't hit me for this, but Baptists aren't historically known for their interest in Christian unity, so this is quite an interesting piece in its own right. But it's got some wonderful lines in it, most of all, one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth, which is a pretty good mission statement for the ecumenical movement. We're going to remain seated as the voices stand and lead us and we sing in Christ there is no east or west.
well, a common uh, way of approaching ecumenism is to say, let's leave all our doctrinal differences to one side and let's just get on with practical Christianity, usually interpreted as acts of humble service. That's very much the sentiment of this ancient hymn we're about to hear a modern setting of now, Ubi Caritas, somewhere between 300 and 1100. A monk wrote a radical meditation which recognized in a way the church has often been slow to do, that the Holy Spirit can make love present wherever it chooses, and that places where such love shows up are called the kingdom of God. It's still sometimes difficult for many to accept that love can show up without the church claiming the credit for it. But as this famous hymn, traditionally sung at the foot washing service on Maundy Thursday each year, puts it where charity and love are, there is God. This is a setting by the Norwegian-American composer Ola Yeho.
Well, we're going to hear two prayers for peace now in contrasting styles. Dar Pacem Domine, uh, Arvo Pet, is based on an ancient Latin text from Kings, Chronicles, and Psalms. And then we're going to hear the Benedictus from Carl Jenkins' Armed Man, a Mass for Peace. Armed Man uh, was commissioned by the Royal Armouries Museum, not hitherto known as a great commissioner of music, uh, to mark its move from London to Leeds, dedicated to victims of the war in Kosovo. It charts with growing menace the descent into war interspersed with moments of reflection and demonstrates the horrors that war brings and concludes with a hope for peace in a new millennium when sorrow, pain, and death can be overcome. It's all going jolly well, isn't it? Uh, it's very much in the tradition of Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, commemorating war and pointing the path to peace. Now, you may say, what's ecumenism got to do with peace? Um, and I'd be pleased if you said that, but sort of sad, because it's a common phrase that uh, all the wars in the world are caused by religion. You'll have heard that phrase many times, I'm sure. I actually did a bit of research on this, and the answer is that 10.6% of all the world wars have been caused by religion. So there you go. It's as precise as that. Now, you might say, well, that's not as bad as I thought, but it's pretty awful. A friend of mine has, or used to have before he retired, on his office door, a simple poster that was produced by the Mennonites that says, a modest proposal for peace that the Christians of the world agree to stop killing one another. Simple as that. Let's enjoy these two pieces now.
Well, it's time for us all to sing again now, and we're going to sing pretty much the most self-satisfied ecumenical hymn of them all. Um, this has got an interesting history about it. It goes back to a dispute between Rish Bishop Robert Gray of Cape Town in the early 1860s and his appointee, appointee John Colenso of Natal. Now, Colenso was a man well ahead of his time, both terms of his understanding of race. This is South Africa we're talking about, remember. Uh, he learned Zulu, for example, um, but also because he was an early advocate of the historical critical method of reading the Bible. Um, in other words, he was skeptical about whether there really was an Abraham or whether that was a person who the biblical writers had more or less created to fulfill a role in Israel's history, this kind of thing. Was there really a Red Sea uh, crossing, or was that um, something that had been created out of Israel's traditions, this kind of thing. Well, it was very popular in the 20th century. It's not so popular now, uh, but it was, he was well ahead of his time in the 1860s to be in that kind of place. So for both those reasons, his views about race and his views about how to read the Bible, uh, Colenso was in Robert Gray's bad books. So he was suspended and he appealed to Canterbury. He appealed to, uh, to the Church of England because in those days there wasn't a Church of South Africa. It was all part of the Church of England because England was the world really in those days, wasn't it? So it didn't really need to have separate provinces. Um, and what happened was a mixed blessing in the end. What, that, what came out of that was the first uh, Lambeth Conference of 1867. So the whole notion of an Anglican communion and the first meeting of all the bishops of the Lambeth Conference in 1867 really came out of this dispute and how impossible it was to resolve a dispute within one part of the British Empire. So you can get a little hint about the origins of, of this hymn in the fourth verse where it says, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distress. That's Colenso we're talking about right there. Anyhow, Samuel Stone, an Episcopalian in America, uh, wrote a set of hymns based on the Apostles' Creed uh, which responded to, uh, to this crisis. And, of course, the Church's One Foundation is one of those hymns. And if you feel good about the Anglican Communion, you say um, that 
the Anglican Communion is itself an ecumenical movement. There's a broad umbrella that brings everyone in its wide embrace. If you don't like the Anglican Communion, you say they're so preoccupied with fighting amongst themselves they haven't even got time for ecumenism. So I'll, I'll leave the jury out on that one. Uh, as we enjoy seeing this together, we remain seated. The voices stand and lead us in the church's one foundation. Well, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this week. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. If you have, there's an opportunity to make a donation as you leave. And we take cards and we take swipes and we take texts and we take visits to the website and there is no excuse. So we're thrilled to see you. We hope you'd like to support this movement, which has been going 10 years now, more than 10 years, maybe another 10 years to come with your support. 
We're going to finish with Let All the World. It's not the George Herbert version. It's a, a slightly different version. Sally Albrecht is a prolific composer based in South Carolina, Hilton Head Island, very special place. Um, and it takes us back to the original meaning of ecumenism, which actually was really meant referring to the whole world. Uh, those of you who are specialists in church history or doctrine will know we, when we talk about the ecumenical councils, they're the councils that happened up to 451 when the church had its first split. So ecumenism is really an ambition to embrace the whole world uh, with, with the church and for a church to stretch across the whole wide world and be united. So this is a very suitable uh, piece with which to complete our reflections on ecumenism today. Thanks for joining us.